are closed today. The opening ceremony of the Tokyo Olympics takes place this evening. In South Korea, stocks are flat. Looks like there's going to be a small decline for the Hang Seng at the open this morning of about 15 to 20 points. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is trading about a quarter of a percent lower now at $73.71 a barrel. Gold is at $1,808 an ounce. That's it from me. Have a great weekend. Do please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Back chat is coming up after the news. And this morning, Hugh Chiverton and Karen Coe are joined by Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam. So do please stay tuned for that. The weather forecast for today, mainly fine, very hot with haze during the day with a maximum temperature of around 34 degrees. The outlook is for it to be very hot, apart from a few showers in the next couple of days. The very hot weather warning is in force. Out at the observatory, it's 29 degrees right now 83% relative humidity 831 with a half hour news here's Barry O'Rourke The eyes of the world turn to Tokyo tonight when the delayed Olympic Games finally get underway with what's expected to be a relatively muted opening ceremony The Games continue to attract controversy with Tokyo recording its worst daily coronavirus figures in six months yesterday The artistic director of tonight's ceremony was fired at the last minute when film emerged of him making anti-Semitic comments 20 years ago. Hong Kong's involvement starts in just a few minutes. Rower Winnie Hung will look to qualify from Heat 3 of the Single Skulls event. She finished 8th in the 2018 Asian Games and this is her first Olympics. My biggest worry is being the last of the game but I will try my best to do it well and I've been a full-time athlete for only four years, so lack of experience. I need to get more experience and train more. The United States has imposed sanctions on a senior Cuban security official and a government security force over their response to anti-government protests last week. The BBC's Candice Piet reports. This is the first step by the Biden administration to try to put pressure on the Cuban government over alleged human rights abuses. President Biden has been facing pressure from the Cuban-American community to show greater support for the protesters who organized the biggest anti-government demonstrations in decades. Alvaro Lopez Miera, the Minister of the Armed Forces, and a special security brigade in the Ministry of Interior are both being penalized. Social media images of the protests appear to show demonstrators being detained and beaten. The Cuban president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, said they were mercenaries hired by the U.S. to destabilize his country. The upper house of the Czech parliament has approved legislation which will allow compensation to hundreds of mostly Roma women who were sterilized over a period lasting several decades. In most cases, the women were sterilized after giving birth, under pressure of having their state benefits removed or even their children taken away if they continued to get pregnant. Elena was sterilized 30 years ago after having her second baby. The nurse came to me and she had some papers, so I signed them. I had my second caesarean section and while they were doing this, they sterilized me. Because I was in so much pain, I would have signed anything. Many popular websites, including those of banks, airlines and games, went offline yesterday in a widespread global outage. 
Thousands of visitors attempting to reach sites such as HSBC Bank, Airbnb and PlayStation received error messages. The problem is thought to have been with DNS, domain name systems, which turn the readable website addresses we use into addresses that point to a computer server online. More news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back to Earth. I'm Hugh Chiverton and your co-host today is Karen Coe. Karen, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Just one guest to talk to today as we're joined by the Chief Executive, Mrs Carrie Lamb. But plenty, of course, to talk about. And if you want to see what's going on this morning, well, we're streaming the video on the internet now on Facebook. That's on the RTHK Back Chat and also on the RTHK Radio 3 pages. And also on YouTube Live, that's on the RTHK Radio 3 channel. So that's RTHK Radio 3 on YouTube Live. Mrs. Lamb, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Hugh. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Mrs. Lamb. Um, thank you for joining us today. I wanted to start off the discussion talking about Hong Kong's image and reputation in the world. You know, a lot of our listeners yes. have ties to overseas. Hong Kong's a very open mm. um, to the world city. So it's been just over a year since the national security law was implemented. At the time, the international reaction was largely negative, And that negative language and sentiment hasn't really gone away. I mean, we, we just saw last week President Joe Biden calling the situation in Hong Kong deteriorating. How does that sit with you that this is how Hong Kong's being described in the world? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I have said this in public, and I will confess that uh, events in the last um, year or so, particularly uh, arising from the implementation of a national security law, has caused um, some damage to Hong Kong's international reputation. But the best way uh, to refute that is let the facts and the statistics speak for themselves. Uh, so in a recent speech to sort of uh, commemorate the first anniversary of the enactment of a national security law, I tried to lay out those facts and statistics in order to dispel those rumors, uh, speculations, misunderstanding, or sometimes is um, politically motivated uh, negative uh, comments about the implementation of a national security law. And we will do more. Uh, through our uh, network of economic and trade offices. Actually, if you, if you do a count, my ETOs overseas have been issuing letters to editor and uh, op-eds to refute those uh, sweeping statements made about uh, the national security law, about the erosion of freedom, and, uh, and so on and so on in the Western media. But I have come <coughs> to this view, having been the chief executive of the Hong Kong SAR for four years now, that uh, there is an inbuilt bias against uh, uh, the People's Republic of China. And uh, Hong Kong used to be a very ready platform, or sometimes people call it a point, uh, to do what other motivated uh, political people want to do about suppressing China. And now when it appears that uh, this platform or this point is now no longer so readily usable, then of course it will turn to the other extreme that uh, is now uh, China sort of uh, cracked down on Hong Kong and taking away people's uh, freedoms. But you two people have been in Hong Kong for so many years. I, I, I would honestly ask you, what sort of freedoms have we lost? What sort of uh, vibrancy has Hong Kong been eroded? If you look at the stock market, the property market, and the technology sector, the startups, even the arts and culture now, 
they are all booming uh, because of the support from the central people's government and because of the restoration of order and stability in Hong Kong. Um, I think, yeah, there's definitely a point to be made that, yes, the stock market is booming. Yes, there are core industries that can carry on. Mm. But there is also the feeling that the feeling of Hong Kong has changed, that we who could always speak freely about anything and were actually encouraged to speak freely, especially being critical, you know, being critical of, of government, being critical of policies, that people are afraid to do that now. No, if you read uh, the newspapers and uh, listen to the radio and all these uh, key opinion leaders, uh, every day uh, they are still criticizing the government policies. Every day the chief executive of Hong Kong is still being attacked and presented in a negative way. So I just don't see that sort of freedom of expressions and speech have been undermined. But if you ask me uh, what could not be spoken or deployed more freely will be those that are undermining and endangering national security. Or what we now describe as condoning. Okay, those people who speak along those lines, they may or may not have breached the crime, but they are condoning. They are condoning violence. They are condoning terrorism. They are spreading hatred amongst the people. They are misleading people into hating their own country. This anti-patriotism sentiment in Hong Kong. Is that something that we should uh, be very proud of (laughs) in terms of a free society? I don't think so. Because um, loving your own country should be something that uh, we are very proud of. And supporting national security is the responsibility of every citizen. You have seen this in America, in Europe, all over the world. If you look at what we are doing in national security in terms of law and enforcement, I would say that we are, well, we are more con- restrained and modest than many of these so-called Western democracies. So, uh, I was just curious, you said there about, you talked about a history of, of uh, people trying to use Hong Kong to suppress China. Can you give us some examples of that and when that's happened and who's been doing it? Well, uh, this is not the sort of occasion to go so deeply into this uh, geopolitical issue uh, here. But if you look at, okay, uh, Karen mentioned about President Biden's view, uh, a sweeping statement saying that Hong Kong situation is deteriorating. If you look at uh, Secretary of State but I Blinken's... But think that's fairly recent. That's relatively recent. Uh, you were saying there's a history now, of it? That's now, something you've experienced over the last four years. These are exposed. These are now exposed. Sure, sure. So, if you uh, asked me four years ago yes. uh, whether I agreed or I accepted that there were external forces interfering into Hong Kong's affairs with a view of uh, taking forward their um, uh, China agenda, I would probably say no. Uh, But now, having seen what has happened in Hong Kong uh, with these uh, uh, riots and violence, uh, which clearly have some background to it, because I can't speak very frankly and into detail, because all these cases will appear in the court. You you have to understand. Uh, We are charging some people uh, under the national security law for colluding with external forces to undermine and endanger national security. So it is not proper for the chief executive (laughs) to tell you. Was that happening before 2019? Well, we will have to look at uh, what we are 
going to present. Although the law does not have retrospective uh, effect, but certainly one will have to look at it in contest. So, uh, I don't understand, sorry. Is, was it happening before 2019 or was it not? Because if it was no, happening I, af- I th- only after... It, then... I think it is a process. Oh, that is my view mm-hmm. as the chief executive. Mm-hmm. I think that is a process. Uh, if you look at uh, what has driven um, many Hong Kong people, particularly the young generation, uh, especially those who were born after 1997, uh, when the exercise of uh, sovereignty has been returned to China, why were these young people have such a sort of anti-China sentiment? Why did um, an initiative of the education bureaus to teach national education in Hong Kong schools could have aroused that sort of strong resistance and protest on the streets? Why were rioters during the 2019 uh, anti-fugitive offenders ordinance have all this geared this gear, this uh, equipment uh, supplied to them, then one will have to ask yourself uh, what has happened uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, sorry, and you're saying that that is because external forces were using Hong Kong to, uh, to suppress your word China? That's my view. So that's, that's your view. Okay. And, and the evidence for that? As I said, this is not the occasion to talk about evidence the way I have judicial proceedings. But you see, yeah. the thing is, because I've spoken to you know, a number of, of chief executives yeah. in, in similar situations, including, of course, um, C.Y. Lung, yeah. uh, who, who often said that you know, there, was, there was evidence uh, similar to what you have described. Uh, and it's, it's, we haven't seen it yet, so we're naturally curious. No, I'm afraid I could not satisfy your curiosity this mm. morning. But as I've said, I hope you will uh, consider and um, um, read the many, many statements that the Hong Kong ASEAN government has made, the many, many statements that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have made over all these um, unreasonable, unjustified and malicious attacks on Hong Kong in the last year or so. What have, what have we done to invite these, all these attacks just by implementing a national security law to protect our country and to protect but the again, people of Hong Kong? But again, you're saying this all predates that. Yeah. This all predates 2019. Because it will not happen overnight. Come on, Hugh. Do you feel, or do you, do you believe that all the things that we have seen in June 2019 started in June 2019? But Mrs. Lam, I think they started because of the introduction of the extradition bill. No, that's, that's they really... started from after reunification. You look at what happened in 2003 with the local enactment of Article 23, which is a constitutional duty, and I will still do it. What happened with the introduction of a national education in 2012? What happened in um, Occupy the Central Movement arising from the constitutional reform in 2014? What happened in the Mong Kok riots? And then what happened when people blatantly advocate independence and we have to charge them and dissolve that particular association under the existing ordinance, even without national security law? All these events were in front of us, but but somebody... I would say that the whole community, including the Hong Kong SAR government, somehow were, in a mild way, you said that we were not sufficiently sensitive or alert. We did not realize that it was not just a simple individual isolated act. But in a more sort of uh, fundamental way, if you look at it, it is not as simple as that. 
Perhaps, perhaps we could come back to that. But uh, you said for the situation at the moment, you feel that Hong Kong is thriving. Um, does that mean there will be no need for sort of um, pandemic countermeasures or economic measures when it comes to your policy address? No, definitely not. Not. Well, I, well I'm saying that um, Hong Kong, as a result of what has happened in the last year or so, with the two important uh, measures uh, taken by the central people's government. One is, of course, the enactment and the implementation of a national security law, and the other is improvements into the electoral system. Um, most people feel, and I do, of course, feel, that we could now expect a more stable environment, uh, both in terms of the security side and in terms of the politics side. And that should really give us uh, even more drive to lay out policies that will um, stimulate the economy and improve the livelihood. Because uh, previously, with the highly politicized uh, legislative council, which would uh, reject anything that have anything to do with the mainland, just like building the high-speed train, introducing uh, this co-location to facilitate customs and immigration clearance, and uh, working with mainland on joint projects, and so on and so on. All these were being hugely politicized and resisted. Now, assuming that uh, we are going back to a more normal uh, rational uh, political system than any government of the day. But you, you, said, do more. you said Hong Kong was thriving, and I think that's. I think a lot of people would would, would question that. They'd look at the unemployment rate. No, uh, I did they, not use the word thriving. I, I said that yeah, facts and figures speak for themselves. Mm. That uh, Hong Kong was not as. Hong Kong described by the people back uh, in June last year that um, Hong, Kong, Hong Kong would die, uh, the Hong Kong uh, um, financial system would collapse, and so on and so on. And these words were said by very senior political leaders uh, in the Western world. Hong Kong is still suffering, though. I mean, if you look at small businesses, yeah. um, if we talk about you know, what's still happening now, this ongoing pandemic, um, it's still an extremely expensive place to do business. A lot of the relief that was given, the loans given by the government last year, just went to landlords. It didn't enable businesses to grow, uh, to thrive. So what measures will no, the government come not, up with that's to That's not exactly to assist true, Karen. Small we, businesses. We have spent billions of dollars of relief to help various sectors, particularly hot-heat hot sectors, and amongst the hard hit sectors, we uh, make sure that the small and medium enterprises are also going being um, to be assisted. Now, the problem is around the world, Hong Kong is not unique. This global pandemic has hit the world. Everywhere is the same. But uh, through the resilience of the people, I have to pay tribute to the Hong Kong people, both in terms of adopting the public health standards, wearing the mask, even when there isn't a single confirmed case for 46 days now, still wearing the mask when they go out, and also the measures taken by the government and the very strong fundamentals that Hong Kong has. Yes, we have suffered, uh, I think, six quarters of negative growth, but in 2021, Q1. The year-on-year -year growth was a remarkable 7.9%, and the unemployment rate has gone down by 0.5% for every three months. The latest is 5.5% from the peak of 7.2% not too long ago. It was only about three, four months ago, it was still 7.2. So that means that we have this readiness to bounce back. Now the biggest uh, problem lies in um, resuming travel. 
both with the mainland and、mm. with the overseas, because Hong Kong is an international city, and we used to have、um, 60 million tourists coming here. So without with all this evaporated, of course, it will be it continue to be a very difficult、uh, situation. Then the government will continue to do our best, controlling the pandemic, raising the vaccination rates. Are one of the very key measures in order to resume travel. Yeah,、uh, once travel resume,、uh, business comes back.、Uh, I think、um, Hong Kong will bounce back very quickly.、Uh, it's, it's a nice rosy picture and very optimistic. What? What? Why do you need a policy address then? What? What will you be doing in the policy address? What will you be seeking to do? Why do why do the chief executive need a policy address? That's a very good question. Why why do successive chief executives have to do any policy addresses?、Um, this is my final uh, policy uh, address in this five year term.、Um, in the past four policy addresses,、uh, we have,、uh, with the support of a lot of colleagues, rolled out nine hundred initiatives.、Uh, we have completed ninety four, ninety five percent. There are still a few we need to catch up. So this policy address, as I have. Have said in public exactly because of the、um, what we what we have seen in the past two years.、Uh, exactly because、uh, I believe, and many people told me that now that、uh, political stability and security have been restored, this is the time to think big, bold, and long term. So, although being the final policy address, by the time I deliver it in October, there are only about eight months left.、Mm-hmm. I still want to paint a. Uh, long-term uh, picture for Hong Kong, especially、uh, with the 14 five-year plan of the nation, which I was deeply involved in、uh, crafting the chapter on Hong Kong and Macau. Of course, the Hong Kong part. So,、uh, since、uh, the central government has given、um, uh, Hong Kong huge support in terms of growing what we are already strong at, that is a financial centre, trade,、um, transportation, and legal services, and on top of that, for the first time, has given us support in innovation and technology, art and culture, intellectual property rights, as well as aviation. I think there's so much Hong Kong could do in each of these eight areas. So the policy address will will try to.、Um, Concretize some of these uh, uh, vision, uh, and hopefully it will drive various sectors in society to align their strategy to develop Hong Kong's economy. And do all that under a high degree of autonomy. Of course, of course. Is is obviously Greater Bay Area is probably、yes. part of that、yes. um, strategy, and businesses are very curious because it seems you know conceptually it sounds like a great idea, but there's very little on the ground concrete. How is this going to work? For example, are we all going to be residents of the Greater Bay Area who can live and work and move freely? Are we all going to pay the same taxes? What's the language of business going to be? What about linkages between academic institutions? I mean, are, when are we going to get those specifics so that no, businesses can actually plan? It has to be very、plan? specific. The、um, Greater Bay Area Outline Development Plan was published in February 2019, and despite this,、uh, this、uh, riot and despite the pandemic, work has been going on.、Uh, the、um, Greater Bay Area Leading Group Chair by Vice Premier Han Zheng,、uh, of which I am a full member, has、uh, met three times, and、uh, there are 24 concrete measures to be implemented. And most of, I would say, 18% of those measures are targeting Hong Kong. That is to benefit Hong Kong in terms of、uh, facilitating the flow of people, capital, goods, data, and so on.
but to answer your question, because if I don't answer well, it would lead to confusion. Under the Greater Bay Area Outline Development Plan, in the preamble, it was stated very clearly that in taking forward this vision of a Greater Bay Area, please stick very clearly to one country, two systems. Please leverage on Hong Kong and Macau strengths being a special administrative region with high degree of autonomy, especially Hong Kong because of her international connectivity and so on. So the things that you described that we will become citizens or residents of GBA and the tax will be the same, the law will be the same, it's no longer common law, but uh, no, no, all this won't happen. But Within this framework of uh, upholding one country, two systems, uh, there's no reason why we could not find innovative uh, policy measures to facilitate um, people flow. Um, it's easy for me because I'm a Chinese national, so I hold a um, home return permit. But it's not too easy for expatriates. Right. Ah, so there is this, um, uh, this idea. Actually, I'm conceiving this and writing a proposal. How we could facilitate expatriates who are Hong Kong permanent residents, but because they are not Chinese national, they could be American and British and so on. So they do not have this home return permit. They have to apply from a visa from the MFA, the OCMFA, in order to go into uh, the GBA. How we could facilitate them? If there could be a pass, something called a GBA pass, uh, you can only travel within the GBA, but it travel more freely. This will be crucially important uh, for um, the business cooperation between the two sides. This will be very instrumental to technology collaboration, because right now, Hong Kong is very well positioned to attract a lot of scientists to come back. Because in America, again, they are suppressing the Chinese, um, uh, the ethnic Chinese uh, scientists. So we have a scheme to bring back uh, these uh, renowned scientists, but they will not be Chinese nationals with that access. So I'm, I'm trying to propose a scheme that will give them easier access into the Greater Bay Area, so that if they work in a Shenzhen startup or a um, whatever a uh, company uh, that translate the uh, technology, then it will be easier for them to go in and out of the Greater Bay Area. It, it, it's very interesting to hear, yeah, these, these, these larger scale plans for the, for the policy address that you, you, you've been outlining and, and been alluding to, uh, and the role and how that has to integrate with a five-year plan uh, and how we fit into the, to the Greater Bay Area. Um, um, and, and thanks for coming uh, this morning. I have to say that uh, it's very, very difficult for us on this program, this regular program. Uh, we find it very, very difficult to talk to government officials. Oh, government officials okay. very, very rare despite all our best attempts uh, come on and engage with people especially in phone-ins and even today you know of course you're, you're not taking taking phone calls and in the past few years we have not been able to uh, do uh, phone-ins following the policy address which we have with with previous chief executives all those you know so all those sort of lines of communication Should I take it seems what to you have said down. as a complaint uh, yeah, sure. Okay, yes, I'll do. address yeah, your complaint please. later yeah. on. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, and, and I mean, but it's also a kind of, uh, unfortunately, uh, for many people, a kind of symptom of a disconnect, I think, between the people and, and the administration. We did ask for questions uh, in advance uh, through uh, email. I've got to say <laughs> thank you very, very much, but we, we've been completely deluged with, with questions uh, and comments on a, on a huge variety of issues. There aren't very many common themes. Perhaps housing is, is something, the quarantine 
vaccine measures and pandemic policy is something that recurs. But in general, there's, there's a huge range of questions that people want to put to the administration and comments and feedback that you people want to give. You can put those to me, Hugh. You sure. should not use your three minutes to raise all this well, without asking me a question. I, I, I couldn't go. I couldn't raise. I couldn't go through all these because there are so many of them. I mean, please come back. I mean, please and and we would we love to see government officials coming every week on our program to engage and to hear what what people have to say. Um, the, the the point would be, I guess, that that. Um, people also talk a lot about trust. Uh, that's a, that's a that's a common theme that people f feel that there is a, has been a breakdown in trust between between the administration and many people, even most people uh, in Hong Kong. And that's a kind of key issue. That's a kind of core problem which has to be addressed before anything else. That the, your 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 structuring and talking about the policy address and your grand plans in terms of the five-year plan, not in terms of what people in Hong Kong want or even need. Well, uh, point number one, uh, I can I can um, promise you that I will impress upon my colleagues that they should be more forthcoming to take English language uh, programs, uh, not necessarily RTHK, but uh, we do need to speak to the English uh, speaking audience because of a point that Karen has just raised at the beginning. So um, English media should have equal access to the principal officials and the senior civil servants to talk about their policy areas. Secondly is um, trust is mutual. Okay. So uh, we Indeed also need... Is. We also need uh, people to trust us, but um, I'm sorry to say that um, outside there is um, a campaign or a movement to undermine the trust in the government. Uh, when we have seen too much of that. Third is as far as the policy address is con concerned, it's like previous year, uh, I will do uh, many consultation sessions, either um, uh, online or offline. Uh, and um, we'll do. I, I'm actually doing more than uh, previous years in order to speak. Uh, more to the different uh, sectors. Uh, but one has to bear in mind that for the chief executive, there is always a security aspect to it. Especially now we have seen what we call the lone wolf um, terrorists. So for me to go into a town hall meeting is perhaps not... Uh, okay, Zoom is great. Zoom is, Zoom is another option. Yeah. We've just got a break for the news now at nine o'clock for a, a few minutes. We will continue uh, the conversation uh, after that. So uh, do stay tuned. The weather forecast before the news is going to be mainly fine. Very hot with haze during the day and a few showers later. And uh, very hot tomorrow too. 29 degrees at the moment. Relative humidity 81%. Mark Lowen is in Rome. The first country in the West to be crushed by coronavirus is beginning to see a fourth surge, with cases rising to a two-month high, driven by the Delta variant. And so from early August, the government is tightening requirements to sit inside restaurants and cafes and to enter cinemas, theatres, museums and sports and recreation venues. All those over the age of 12 who don't have a medical reason not to have been vaccinated will have to show proof of at least one dose or a coronavirus test test or evidence that they've recovered from the virus. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is uh, Bank Chat this Friday morning with Karen Coe and me, Hugh Tewerton. And we're talking this morning to the Chief Executive, um, Mrs. Carrie Lam, who's kindly uh, joined us to talk about uh, uh, issues ahead of her policy uh, address. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking on that until 9.30 this morning. We are broadcasting on the internet this morning visually uh, as well for a change. So we're on Facebook Live on the RTHK Bank Chat and also on the RTHK Radio 3 pages. And we're on YouTube Live 
live as well. That's on the RTHK Radio 3 channel. Uh, Mrs. Lamb, um, you you spoke at the beginning about the the combined effect of the uh, national security legislation and the the new legislation on uh, electoral uh, arrangements. Um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of things have come in their wake, uh, as you know. Um, changes, massive changes to uh, educational arrangements, all kinds of social uh, implications, implications for the uh, press, for Hong Kong's uh, international standing, as we've touched on, all kinds of things like that. Some people have spoken of this as as a second handover. Um, some people have called it a reset. I think uh, resurrection was the word that was that was used. How would you characterize what's happening now? These changes. Well, I will. I will describe this as um, we are moving into a new era, in accurately and comprehensively implementing one country, two systems. Uh, and as a result of that, well, we need to review a lot of uh, systems, practices, uh, policies to ensure that they are aligned with this new era that is fully implementing the one country, two systems. In my last policy address, I think I was the first chief executive to spend a whole chapter in a policy address document to talk about how we could and should improve and enhance the implementation of one country, two systems in Hong Kong. So uh, from the constitutional level, we have to enact and implement the national security law to safeguard national security, we have to um, proceed to dealing with Article 23. Uh, We have to uh, um, implement the oath-taking of public officials and so on. And in every aspect, including in education, uh, we should no longer shy away from uh, promoting this uh, sense of national identity through education, especially from the younger uh, generation. So all these measures, I've been very transparent with what I want to do and need to do. I said it in the policy address and in the last um, eight months I am doing that sort of things. Uh, so in Chinese, I describe this as uh, we are moving back to the right track and we are going back to the original intent of the one country, two systems. I, I guess the point would be that we're not really going back, though, are we? We're not going back to anything. This is a new era. We're going to something fresh. We have Hong Kong has not lived like this. Hong Kong has not experienced what you are describing, this regime. Well, that not you're quite describing. true, I think. That's why I said I well, use the word. Under the colonial well, times. We are improving. Oh, you mean the colonial times? Okay. Well, I'm saying, no, not in colonial times it wasn't like that. I'm saying not in the last 23 okay. years. According to you, it wasn't uh, like that. Because the one so, country, two systems principle has not been accurately mm-hmm. implemented. One country, two systems uh, lies in one country being the basis or using President Xi Jinping's analogy. That was the roots of a tree. So if the roots are not strong, the tree could not flourish. Okay, the two systems are the trees. The Hong Kong system is a tree. We can't flourish, and this tree will die. So now that we have strengthened the roots, that is the one country in terms of national identity and national education, national security. But, but so in terms of we can grow this tree. In terms of people's experience, what we're talking about is a is a is a new Hong Kong. We're talking about a, a fundamental, a cultural change, a no, revolution no, 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 no. For, for Hong no. Kong. All these uh, rights and freedoms enshrined in the Basic Law that people have. Enjoyed 
enjoyed in the last 24 years are still there. It's still there because even in the national security law, Article 4 uh, makes it very clear that while protecting national security, we have also to uphold these um, rights and freedoms enjoyed by the people of Hong Kong under the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights and so on and so on. So those are, don't over-exaggerate uh, the impact of the national security law, what I have described as bringing... Well, you say it's a new era. Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty... Big, a big thing. Is that true? I, I, maybe we have a different uh, understanding of this term. Um, but what I'm saying is, uh, we really have not uh, fully understood and implemented the one country, two systems. Now, with what we have done, or not we have done, but the National People's Congress has uh, introduced uh, two important measures, we have a uh, much stronger and solid basis to take one country, two systems to the next stage. And the next stage is going to be bright and good for Hong Kong because that will enable Hong Kong to leverage on our strength, high degree of autonomy uh, within the People's Republic of China, but still a capitalist economy, practicing common law with its own currency and hence uh, an international financial center. But at the same time, we have removed quite a lot of the obstacles that uh, prevent Hong Kong from taking advantage from the growth of the country, that is, integrating better into the mainland development uh, through the GBA, because I said in the previous um, 20 minutes, uh, in the past, recent past, uh, whenever we have something we want to do with the mainland, uh, if it requires legislation, like the co-location for the high-speed train, uh, if we need some funding, for example, we want to build something together to facilitate uh, customs clearance or build a road. It had met with tremendous objection at the Legislative Council, simply because uh, there are people, there were people who did not want to see Hong Kong integrating into her motherland. Isn't that wrong? What, well, right, right is, or though? wrong, they were they were there. <laughs> you have seen that, <laughs> well, Karen. Well, the, you you gave all the examples over the you yeah. know since two thousand and three. So it seems to indicate that Hong Kong people don't feel like they are the same as mainland Chinese people. It's nothing to do with not loving China, not feeling Chinese. They still love Chinese culture. They identify as you know as Chinese culturally. But there's a difference between loving Hong Kong and loving the mainland in the eyes of the Hong Kong people. And that speaks to, you know, the Hong Kong identity. And, and maybe that's the resistance, you know, the resistance to having more what we would call in inverted commas mainlandization. Now, let, let me say that I'm not talking about the great majority of uh, the people of Hong Kong. I still believe, as I said in a speech last week, that the, the great majority of people uh, people of Hong Kong are patriotic. You just look at whenever there is a, a natural disaster in the mainland of China, then many Hong Kong people would voluntarily um, uh, donate and do other things. Just like right now, uh, we have seen this severe flooding in uh, Zhengzhou. Well, mm -hmm. We see a lot of people. But there is indeed a faction of the population uh, who harbor that sort of um, anti-China. And in order to take forward that anti-China, they tend to advocate, champion for what we now call localism. Uh, it's very dangerous to say that we have only a Hong Kong identity. We don't have a um, Chinese identity. We are part of China. But isn't it true? I mean, you, ca you can't, uh. you, as, as much as you like to impose, you know, uh, a national identity, it's 
if people have grown up like this, if, if they've had grandparents who fled China during the Cultural Revolution, who swam over from Shenzhen, of course they're growing up with this feeling that they came to Hong Kong and Hong Kong was a place of, of refuge and opportunity and it's special. So now basically they're being told you're not special. You're just no, no, I, I, like I don't think else. you could assume that those who left um, China coming into Hong Kong are not patriotic. In the same way that I'm not assuming that uh, those Hong Kong people who now emigrate are not uh, still don't. in love still of Hong, love Hong Kong. Kong yeah. Yeah. So let's take that very uh, uh, objective view about those people moving around at different stages of their life and facing different circumstances. But Hong Kong is a part of the People's Republic of China, point number one. Point number two is, uh, as a result of the uh, uh, finding a way to resolve this uh, historical legacy, there is this uh, very innovative concept of one country, two systems. But that doesn't mean that Hong Kong could be on her own. Hong Kong could not be a country, could not be separated from the mainland of China. That's why the one country is the basis of the system of one country, two systems. So we have to help the um, implementation of one country, two systems by strengthening this um, concept and understanding of the one country. Uh, that doesn't mean that we will wipe out the Hong Kong system. Uh, even leaders have been talking about the strengths of Hong Kong. Oh, you people, your Cantonese songs are very popular in, uh, in the mainland. You have this unique status of East meets West. Uh, that's why in the 14-5-year plan, uh, knowing that culture sometimes is quite ideological, um, the, um, the central authorities have given Hong Kong this unique position as a cultural hub for the exchange of East and West cultural. And in my view, uh, is to use Hong Kong as a platform to promote the Chinese culture. Uh, because now everybody wants to talk about not only the hard power, but also the soft power. And culture is uh, one of the very good uh, medium uh, to talk about culture. And we need to talk, we need to talk more and about the China story, about the Hong Kong story, because there are so many misunderstandings uh, in the outside world. One, one common theme from the, from the emails that uh, we did receive when we asked for, for questions or, or, or comments to, to put to you this morning, uh, Mrs. Lam, uh, was, uh, was about trust, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and, and also about uh, accountability. And a lot of the issues that were raised, I think, come under the heading of accountability in one way or another. I would only just like to hear your, your thoughts on some of those. Um, starting off with that, with the, with the question of the, uh, the bribery ordinance, prevention of bribery ordinance, and the exemption of... Of the, of the chief executive from that. Do, you did say uh, that you were going to resolve uh, those constitutional uh, and legal issues uh, uh, that uh, arise, uh, in your view, from extending the, the, the scope of that. Um, you haven't done. In fact, you've, you've now said you won't and you don't want people in the future yes. uh, to do it. Yes. Um, could not some arrangement be made? That was what was suggested back in, in 2012, uh, that, that you have an independent review committee, uh, you, you lash something up in, in essence to, to, uh, to at least do that. It seems like in many ways, well, we'll, we'll, we'll return to this, but you, you could make more of an effort. Why, in that particular case, why not? It's not a question of effort. Uh, let me first say that uh, four or five years ago, because even as a chief executive, I, a chief secretary for administration in the last term of government, uh, I was the official who had to handle this issue arising from a, a review committee report uh, produced by the former chief justice. 
I have to um, tell you very frankly, I'm a very honest person that uh, four or five years ago, I did not have a full and deep understanding of the constitutional position of the chief executive because I have not been one. <laughs> now that I've been a chief executive of the Hong Kong SAR, I'm not just the head of the Hong Kong SAR government. I'm the head of the Hong Kong SAR. I'm the only person in Hong Kong under the basic law who has due accountability. I'm accountable to people in Hong Kong. I'm accountable to the central people's government. So. Um, the understanding of myself as a chief executive or as the official um, responsible for taking forward such a recommendation has now a deeper understanding. It's a learning curve. I have to confess it's a learning curve. Okay. Now I have this deep understanding and I realize that it is not justified to make that amendment. And by the way, when you just refer to the prevention of bribery ordinance, it's not entirely accurate. We're only talking about section three and eight. Section four and 10, which are serious bribery offenses, uh, including this so-called um, uh, the person's wealth is not commensurate with the position and so on. All these are applied to the chief executive. The remaining sections three and eight are dealing with relatively minor and trivial things like um, uh, accept an advantage. And advantage is broadly um, defined as a gift, a souvenir, and things like that. And, and, and the, proposal was, the proposal was that the, 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 there would be an independent committee with the president. And I'll of, come to that. Yeah, why not do Under that? Section 3, that? for public, other public officials, if they need to accept an advantage, then who, who gives them the approval? It's the chief executive. And I delegate not delegate. I sort of given them a broad brush. If it is below, I can't remember, $400, then you don't need to come to me because otherwise I will be lumped with all these uh, uh, requests and applications on a daily basis. Now, so the question is, who is going to give consent to the chief executive uh, in order for her to comply with Section 3? So there have been also a discussion, let's set up a committee comprising the electoral president, the chief justice, or let's have a state council, because I'm a central government official, let's have a state council to set up a committee. Now, if you look at the, what we call the proportionality, that was a very minor situation. And to subject the chief executive to another body comprising the legislature, the judiciary, to whom they are responsible, they are responsible to the chief executive. So constitutionally, one could simply not square that. But that doesn't mean that uh, the uh, chief executive could just uh, uh, blindly accept uh, advantages uh, from the public because I'm a senior government official. I'm a central government official. I'm sure the central government will monitor the chief executive's uh, performance and integrity. So let's be very clear once and for all. I am not suggesting, we are not suggesting that uh, the chief executive is above the law. The chief executive is subject to the key provisions in the prevention of bribery ordinance and also subject to the common law offense of MIPO, that is misconduct in public office. We are merely talking about this relatively minor acceptance or advantage, which the chief executive in her daily interactions with the people with overseas dignitaries there will be gifts, there will be souvenirs. And for the chief executive to ask the chief justice or the legal, whether I said, it's just, you just can't square it with the constitutional position 
of the chief but executive. But you, you could because you could authorize them to do it, yeah. and then and then you say, look, <laughs> I've made this, I've made this decision, and, and, and then people that, would people would admire you, and people would people would, would give you more you. trust, no, and no, people no. would feel I that they have had more. That if you have the chief executive in Hong Kong is more concerned about her popularity. If the chief executive in Hong Accountability. Kong, accountability. I'm not about uh, It's about how people uh, see uh, her, admire her, especially in a society like Hong Kong, where all these uh, uh, news could be spread in a uh, very uh, uh, strange manner on the internet. Uh, I would not be doing a lot of things it, that I'm not it, doing. It's more to do with being answerable that the chief executive is answerable to the people of Hong Kong, the, that if the chief executive or the administration does something wrong, then there will be consequences. Transparency. Then there will be consequences. Uh, the chief executive and there will be punishments. acts in a very transparent way. So if there, and, and you people from the media claim that you are what, the fourth power, so you can monitor uh, whatever the behaviors that you feel that um, are not right, and you can report on it. But and if, then if, somebody would take action. But if the mechanism is that the central people's government will monitor you, how do we have access to that information? You know, that, that's a bit of a black box. If, no, no, no. It, the acts of local, the chief executive that would uh, run into that sort of uh, concerns, I doubt very much that they would be in a black box. We have seen that on previous uh, occasions. But frankly, if you ask that uh, the chief executive of the day could authorize and appoint a committee to report or to uh, give consent to the chief executive just for the sake, just for the sake of satisfying this, uh, this uh, perception, um, I, I don't think it's proportionate to upholding the constitutional okay, well, a, a position. Perhaps, okay, well, perhaps a, a, a bigger issue. I mean, people have said, and perhaps many people uh, have said and expressed to, to Backchat and so on, um, 2019, what happened in, in, in 2019? By any measure, um, the disturbances were a massive security failure. Who bore responsibility for that? The person in charge of security has been promoted to the chief secretary. What, where's the logic in that? Well, you have to understand that um, for 23 years, um, since 1997, Hong Kong Special Administrative Region did not have any law on national security. The enforcement, the law enforcement authorities did not have any uh, sufficient means to prevent and suppress uh, that sort of uh, riot and terrorism activities until the enactment of the national security law. Uh, the only thing I confess in taking forward the, um, the Fugitive Offenders Ordinance is the PR side. We have not been able to disseminate and articulate the purpose and the objectives of uh, this piece of legislation. I still up to this day, I would not regard that, that as a wrong decision to press ahead with the Fugitive Offenders Ordinance Amendment, but we have not done well in promoting and explaining to people, which then gave some But there was a time when you did take responsibility. The loophole. The, the you, you, I, took, you, I took responsibility for not explaining you well. You said it was unforgivable. You said for the chief executive to cause this situation was unforgivable. It's because we did not implement it well. Nobody wants. Nobody. Nobody in a leading role would like to see the city put under that sort of trauma and stress. That was an objective uh, statement. Absolutely. Nobody. But one has to ask, especially after the event, 
what has given rise to that sort of rights. The bill has been withdrawn or suspended. But it took four, a few it, days. A few days. That was exactly what happened in 2003 when the then chief executive suspended the uh, work on Article 23. It was not until a few months later when uh, the LegCo completed the legal process to withdraw the bill. We were doing exactly the same. But one has to ask, what then has uh, caused all these subsequent uh, riots in the universities and so on and so on for such a prolonged period? Well, you said that you were the cause. You said that you were the cause of the, of the problems. You said that in August 2019. You said it was unforgivable. It's enough, oh, by the way, that was a closed door meeting. I'm not saying that a closed well, door meeting is that I'm lies. <laughs> it was but a that showed that the, the integrity and the morality of some of the media. Huh? Okay. So well, it, wasn't, we, it was <laughs> given to the media by I'm someone sorry, who was the there. The you know, it wasn't to. really not a, not the media. The media should out. not have reported somebody something that was given in that fashion. Why not? Yeah, you're, not? you're a person of public interest. Why not? You know, this is, this is about transparency. Oh, okay, now I have you a better understanding of how the media works. Okay. Where yeah, if, we, if, we're given, if, we're if we're given something we're given and it's something the chief executive, it's the chief executive. Well, it is material. a voice recording. As far as I know, it's not illegal. It's there was no laws obvious. broken as far as I know. Okay, so yeah. perhaps a law needs to be introduced <laughs> on well, that I mean, basis. What, what was well, the question? Or you, or you get new friends. What was the question? Um, okay. Well, uh, the other thing I would, uh, we haven't got very long left, but the other thing when it comes to, to 2019 was, um, what do you make of the district council elections? Obviously, district councils are, are in the news now. Um, was, was the result of the district council elections, was that a, a, a big shock for you, the, the success of the, of the people who seemed broadly sympathetic to the, to the uh, protesters? I, I do not want to comment on that now because, uh, as you observed, uh, the, the situation of the district council members is now a uh, topical issue that uh, we have yet to formally give an official stance. Um, but an election is an election. We have to accept that. But similarly, uh, a law is a law. So we now have a piece of law uh, passed and enacted enacted in May this year. So we have to implement in accordance with the law uh, to do the oath-taking and also to ensure that each and every of the district council members could fulfill the legal requirement in the law. So an election is an election. So it was a legitimate expression of the views of the people. We have not channel, challenged that election. Yeah, uh, exactly, individuals yeah. we might have, but we have not challenged the legality yeah. it of seems the district council election. Most people in Hong Kong were sympathetic to the protesters. For a time, Hugh, for a time after June 2019, many of the people were against the police, including the selection, some of the, the election in the civil was held service. in November, though? Yes. November, yeah. November, so. But events unfolding in the last year, including the report done by IPCC, which is a fact-finding, a very detailed fact-finding report, and all these cases now brought before the court. One have to realize that for those who have been sympathetic to the rioters, and um, uh, resist or anti-police, I think they owe the police an apology. Do you, do you accept that that election suggests that it was the majority of people in Hong Kong who were sympathetic? 
I don't know. You look at the poll results. But one has to realize. One has to sit down, be very calm. And um, why don't you know? I mean, I would thought no, that was no obvious well, thing I've to done think that. about. I've done that. That's why I could give you that the categorical comments. And I think the police have been unfairly treated. Uh, for a long period after 2019. Put aside even the doxing and all this um, hatred, intimidation of their kids in kindergarten and so on. Even as a force, as a police, as a force, uh, as a law enforcement department have been uh, unfairly treated. But, you know, a lot of people felt that during the protests, instead of you coming up with a political solution, the police were used as the response, the government response. Instead of you having dialogue with people about what their grievances were, the police were used as the response. So, so basically a, a f- policing response to a political problem. Well, it's a, it's a security the- problem. Come on, Karen. It's a security problem. People are flowing petrol bombs. People are attacking ordinary people, setting fire on people who held a different opinion, flowing a brick at an old man and killed him. These are security, highly risky and they, they behaviors that require frustrated. a law they enforcement. Have a no, come on, you are very, you are treading on very difficult, very, very dangerous lines. For people who are unhappy, dissatisfied with the environment they're living in, with the government of the day, that could not justify violence. That could not justify bridging the law and killing people. Let's be very clear on that. Okay. Well, Mrs. Lam, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you for your for your frankness. Um, so we weren't able to uh, to uh, deal with many of the specific questions, but we look forward, as you mentioned, sure. to to uh, more government officials coming on to deal with some of perhaps of those uh, those uh, particular issues, whether it's uh, housing or, or quarantine arrangements, transport. Uh, question of uh, immigration again uh, came up for many people, uh, as well as uh, some uh, local issues uh, as well. So uh, we look forward to that in, in future editions of uh, Backchat. In the meantime, as I say, thank you very much indeed no, for joining us. Karen, not thank you very thank much you. indeed. You, Here's the weather just before we go. It's going to be mainly fine today, very hot with haze and uh, a few showers later. It'll be very hot apart from a few showers in the next couple of days. And the latest readings, 29 Celsius with a relative humidity now of 81%. It's half past nine, time for the news. Chief Executive Carrie Lam has said that foreign forces had taken forward an anti-China agenda in Hong Kong before the 2019 pro-democracy protests. Speaking on Backchat this morning, Mrs Lam questioned why younger people harbour such anti-China sentiments. Rower Winnie Hung was the first Hong Kong athlete to compete in the Tokyo Olympics, but failed to qualify in Heat 3 of the Single Skulls event, finishing fourth. And authorities have tested about 300 people at a Tunmun residential block and found no new Covid cases. In a lockdown operation after a resident who returned from Dubai was diagnosed with the mutant strain of the coronavirus. There'll be more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer. Great interpreter of Beethoven. As well. Oh, so shy, quiet and retiring doggy cat. Co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is really for advances and not really for cats. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Decipher what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In-depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Friday here on Morning Brew. 
Well, today is officially the first day of the Summer Olympics. Yay. So at 9.40, that's nine minutes or so from now, Danny Hicks is going to join us live from Tokyo for the first of what will be his daily morning brew reports. Now, these games are not going to be fading from memory any time soon, but let's hope it's more for what happens on the field rather than anything else. We would love to hear from you. Danny's on site and he's going to be there for the whole game. So if you want to email us with a question... Or something for Danny. Morningbrew at rthk.hk. I'll read them out as soon as I get them. Or find us on Facebook Live. After 12 today, we're off to the movies with our critic James Marsh. And as always, you can join in with Marshy Movie Time on Facebook Live as well.